You're listening to Enclave Community Church. For more information about Enclave, please visit us online at enclavecc.com. Today's reading is from Titus chapter 3, verses 9 through 15. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I sent Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for being with us here today. Thank you for providing a message for us to hear. And I ask that you would go before Adam today, give him the words that you desire for him to preach. Give us ears to listen to that message. Um, I thank you for the guidance that you give us in Titus, um, for the practicality of um, how to manage difficult situations within our church and in the encouragement you provide helping us to prioritize so that we have a good and healthy framework for um, how we are supposed to interact with one another as the body of Christ. And we, we thank you most of all for sending your son Jesus to die in our place and to be resurrected. And um, God, we, we ask that you would be with the decanter family today, that you would multiply their time, that you would cause for this sabbatical to be deeply restful and deeply meaningful that you would give Andrew and Sarah peace and um, that you would watch over their kids and provide in the way that only you can provide. And we ask these things in your name, amen. As we lovingly care for our co-ministers, look out for our fellow servants, deal with difficult people, and protect against those who seek to undermine our Christian faith, how we deal with these people speaks volumes. It's not only a barometer to our church health, but it is probably the best way in which we reach the lost. You know, if, if we want to truly evangelize, the best way is not through some program. It is not through uh, a, a book series or a video program. The best way is by calling believers to know that God saves sinners from sins. And this is done through sanctified relationships. You know, um, three months ago, I started a, uh, a little sermon here, and I went through the sec or first half of Titus 3. But really, the whole book of Titus is about relationships. Uh, in chapter 1 of Titus, it's really dealing with the relationships of believers in the church with the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ, in, in dealing with the eldership of those people. Chapter 2 introduced believers' relationships with each other, and in the first half of uh, Titus 3, which is, again, what I was preaching on, it was about the relationship between believers and those uh, 
who are not believers in this unregenerate society and how we are called to be good heavenly citizens in this context. Well, in Titus 3, 9 through 15, Paul gives what might be called the last word on relationships, in which he concludes by distinguishing true relationships between Christians and others. Now, when, uh, whenever a person has an important conversation or a correspondence with a friend or counselor, usually the most personal or sometimes the most urgent things are mentioned at the end of that correspondence. Uh, it was actually really cool. I, I don't know who wrote it, uh, but I got a letter this week from an individual named Gavin, and uh, it just really just kind of uplifted me, uh, thanking me for, for doing worship and preaching every once in a while. You know, every so often, so you forget I'm actually preach every once in a while. You know. It was kind of weird. It's like when I got asked to preach, I'm like, oh my gosh, three months? That's so short a time for me. Yeah, it's usually, yeah, longer. But these urgent words, uh, urgent words if you're going to talk to someone, if you're writing a letter, it usually goes at the end of a letter. And, and this is no different for Paul. At the end of Titus, in his closing words, Paul mentions four distinct <clears throat> and important categories of personal relationships within the church that are of special importance. And those are my four points this morning. Uh, the first one is relationships with false teachers. The second is relationships with factious people. The third, relationships with fellow servants. And the last, relationships with faithful friends. And so in order to have an effective witness, Christians must distinguish true relationships against those who are false teachers. As it mentions in Titus 3.9, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Now, as I mentioned in my last sermon, uh, the believers in the island of Crete, who Paul was writing this letter to Titus, who is the pastor of the church, the believers on this island had been overexposed to a large number of men who claimed to be, uh, represent the Lord, but they were actually distorting his word. It was causing believers to, to fall into unnecessary bickering and fighting. These men had generated so much confusion that Paul had admonished Titus to set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city who would hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, that they may be able to both extort and exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Namely, the many rebellious men, the empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sore gain, as it mentions in Titus 1. Therefore, one of Titus's first instructions by Paul was to avoid foolish controversies. Titus, the other elders, and the congregations of Crete were to turn the other way from the morally and spiritually corrupt false teachers, who not only corrupted the churches, but by their sinful ways, they were a great hindrance to the credibility of the gospel. You know, the effect of false teaching is mentioned numerous times throughout the New Testament. Um, False teaching unsettles the soul, as it mentions in Acts 15, 24. Since we have heard that some of you went out from us, have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. You know, false teaching 
shipwrecks faith and leads to blasphemy. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, having faith and a good conscience, which some having rejected, concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck, <clears throat> of whom Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I deliver to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. False teaching is to the ruin of the hearers. It produces ungodliness and spreads like gangrene. <clears throat> Remind them of these things, charging before them, before the Lord, not to strive about words to no profit. It is to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort. When I was like looking up these verses, that uh, man, that Hymenaeus, you know, is mentioned all over the place. <laughs> but um, the basic reason for giving such avoidance is the essential unprofitableness and uselessness in the false teaching. Now, in this first verse that we are looking at, Paul mentions four specific categories of errors where these false teachers were espousing. Uh, the first was foolish controversies. The second was genealogies. The third was dissensions or strife. And the last was quarrels or disputes about the law. Now, in Paul's letters, controversies have always had a negative connotation and issued in warnings, similar to the one given here about Christians becoming involved in futile arguments about matters of philosophy or even theology that are based on human reason and imagination rather than on God's word. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3 through 7, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers among the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. You know, false teachers in the church invariably distort and contradict scripture, replacing it with novel insights, ideas, or notions that confuse and mislead God's people and undercut their trust in the faith. You know, the danger of false doctrine is made all the worse because it appeals to human reasoning and worldly ideas that finds readily acceptance among the world, right? The world is ready to promote these false teachers because it aligns with what they want. And it also finds home in Christians who have not firmly planted themselves in the word. And they can't distinguish. You know, once a false teacher is exposed, they need to be shunned from the church. They need to be rejected and given no platform to spread their spiritually cancerous and destructive falsehoods. They are not to be debated, but denounced and expelled. You know, although false doctrines themselves are certainly foolish, Paul's point here is that we're not to debate people that are giving these false doctrines because it is unprofitable and it's worthless. And I'm certainly guilty of that myself. I love, like, getting in debates with people over, like, the prosperity gospel, right? I want to talk about all the points, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, of why it's not 
aligning with God's word, right? That's just unprofitable. It's worthless to me. I need to be spreading God's love and his message and not debating negative things. Equally worthless for believers is becoming involved in interpretations of genealogies. I know this is not something our culture is really that big into. And, and Paul was not, of course, belittling the many genealogies that are found in both the New and Old Testament. Those genealogies were critical in determining the God-given lineage of the priesthood, the kings of Judah and Israel, and even the Messiah. But Paul was more concerned with uh, many in the Jewish cultures that had fanciful and allegorical interpretations of such genealogies that, that just derailed the church from its mission. A third type of error that Christians on Crete face was simply referred to as dissensions or strife. And it's a general term that carries the ideas of all kind of self-centered rivalry and contentiousness about the truth. And because the early church included so many converted Jew, Jewish people, a fourth common error involved quarrels or disputes about Mosaic law. That's why, like, you always heard about some of these verses about those of the circumcision group, right? And because, um, because of this, Paul even refers to this problem in his letter to the Galatian churches. Uh, those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised, he warned, simply that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. You know, the problem here was that Jewish people at this time, they were seeing these Gentiles become saved. And they were saying, you know what, you need to follow all the Mosaic law in addition to following Jesus. And they weren't doing this for the love of the Gentiles. One, they were doing this because they wanted to feel like they were better than them. We've, we've followed these laws and you're not. How dare you say you follow God, that you follow Yahweh? Secondly, if those people did start following all of those Mosaic laws, what they wanted to do is boast in their own pride. Look what I've done to this person. Look how awesome he is because of me. It was not about a relationship with God. It was about their own pride. Because Christ came to fulfill the law, right? Not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. So that way we may all have intimate relationship with the God of the universe. Now this issue was clarified and settled at the Council of Jerusalem as recorded in Acts 15. The people in Crete wasted their time, though, running down theological rabbit trails, becoming lost in futile discussions and ideas, contending with one another, and destroying the community of believers. As they argued and quarreled with one another, a climate of anger and bitterness developed, and the church was derailed from its mission. And honestly, like, I, I see a parallel with the modern church. Right? We, we sometimes get into arguing and dividing itself over opinions, political views, parenting styles, worship styles, secondary theological issues, and a vast assortment of opinions and personal preferences that we elevate into spiritual law. And where this occurs, the result is the same today as it was back then. The church is distracted from its mission of bringing salvation and love to the lost. And rather than attracting people 
to God, who is love. The church repels the outside because of unnecessary infighting. Guys, God is unity. He is perfect unity within himself, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And he desires unity for all of us. He desires unity between us and him. And he desires unity within the church that he's created. In 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you but that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. So these divisions are unprofitable and worthless because they do not promote unity within the church, but division. Quarrels and disputes about Mosaic law are to be shunned because they are unprofitable and worthless. Arguing theology, doctrine, or morality with those who distort or disregard God's word is unavoidably fruitless. And now I'm not talking about having a conversation with a believer and we disagree on points of theology because if it's two brothers and sisters in Christ that are talking theology, we could have differences. But the, the point is we want to know God more. Right? I'm talking about people who want to just distort God's word. Why debate them? Right? If our goal is unity... We need to drive out the false teachers. And a secondary issue is to understand a relationship with factious people. In Titus 3, 10 and 11, as for the person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. And just as we are to shun the ungodly, fruitless, and corrupting endeavors, as mentioned in verse 9, we are to have nothing more to do with and reject a person who stirs up division, which is what I call a factious person. This comes after warning them, right? The purpose of warning brothers and sisters in the church is because we love them and we want to bring back that unity, right? We're seeing an issue and we're, we all fall into sin, right? I'm not saying this as someone like, hey, I, I fall into sin all this time. I'm talking about when we're noticing a habitual sin problem. We want that person. We love that person. We want to bring them back in to knowing that love of God. And we need to be, we want to be unified. And we need to warn them, right? The warning needs to come out of love. But it can't be couched in vague references or surrounded by excuses, you know, a rebuke must be loving, but not timid. The goal is to bring the disobedient back into the fellowship of obedience. Warning or rebuking seeks us with humility. Now, unfortunately, not everyone heeds a warning. A person who stirs up division is actually from the word that heretic is derived. Heresy originally meant a division resulting from individual self-will, the individual is doing and teaching what he chose independent of the teaching and practice of the church. The heretics of Crete, where Titus was there, were in doctrine followers of their own self-willed questions and immoral in practice. You know, the person who stirs up division, who does not submit to the word or to godly leaders in the church is autonomous, a person unto his own. They're a law unto themselves, 
and, and do not seek unity. Guys, remember what I said, God is unity. A person who does not seek to be in union with others is rejecting the very nature of God himself. We need to understand this. A divisive spirit is like gangrene. It spreads, it's never satisfied. It poisons and destroys by pitting one person against another, drawing people into two sides, creating division. It's so serious that such persons should be disfellowshipped for continuing to do it. Have nothing to do with them, as it says in Titus 3.10. We don't hesitate to do that with our physical bodies. Though it's painful, we will use surgery to cut away a part of our bodies that is harming the rest. We do not let toxic malignancy take over, and neither should we allow it to brew in the church. Christ is the head of his body, his church, and he desires to have a healthy body. Now, all those false teachers are certainly the ones who stirs up the most division. Paul here is casting a broader net, which includes anyone in the church who is divisive and disruptive. And because the consequences of biblical insubordination, non-submission, and bickering can be so destructive to unity among the Lord's people, the apostle commands that one who stirs up division should be rejected by the church if they do not heed the correction after warning him once and then twice. Now, some of you might be thinking about, like, the book of Matthew. Didn't the Lord give three warnings? Right? In uh, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, Moreover, if your brother and sister sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother, right? We desire that unity. But if you will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses to even hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Now, I believe personally the discrepancy here between the amount of warnings is that um, Paul's two warnings were the two public warnings. The first warning that was in private was not mentioned here. Paul just concentrated on those last two. You know, in Romans 16, Paul instructed also, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such people do not serve the Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Right? These are people in the church. Smooth talk and flattery. They are nice people. They are generally good people if you think of them from a worldly standard. They want to help at the church, but when they see problems at the church, they want to use worldly standards to solve it. Instead of starting first with scripture and building a biblical case, they, they draw upon common practice and perception. They will readily give their opinions on, on relationships outside of marriage, gender identity, drug use, appropriate language, porn, and other topics without consulting what the Bible teaches. They are attempting to dumb down biblical expectation with a desire to be relevant in society. And in a well-meaning effort, it is well-meaning to be pleasant and inoffensive. The very life-saving truth and process of godly directive is put aside. And when biblical standard is shown and insisted upon, 
to continue to push forward with their own ideals and to attempt to draw further proponents is biblically divisive and factious. You know, I, what I love about, um, I know there was a meeting which I missed about the gate. When we were talking as elders, we were building spiritual cases about reaching the homeless, of like, like what, what the implications would be and what God would want in this case. This was not something that started with just our worldly ideals of what this building should look like. And I'm thankful to be a part of an eldership group that started from a biblical grounding on any case that we do. Now, people, they're building these, these divisive ideals, and, and you're trying to admonish them that you should not be giving them continued opportunity to cause division, but lovingly calling that back to the unity of Christ. As it mentions in 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 14 and 15, and if anyone does not obey the word in this epistle, note that person that do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. You know, to a believer who is well-grounded in the word, the errors and sinfulness of factious and divisive people in the church should be obvious. Knowing that such a person who persists in quarreling over foolish ideas is warped and sinful. You know, the, the, the verse here in Titus implies that the warning has been rejected. And therefore, that individual, now with knowledge of the error, is culpable. Right? They're, they're in a sin problem. Maybe they didn't realize it. And you're warning them. Right? No, no, no. no. I, I think I have the better idea here. No, 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 two or three brothers. No, 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 they, they don't get it. No, 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 the whole church doesn't get it. This church doesn't get it. No, what I'm doing is right. At this point in time, they are culpable, right? Because if you're in the body of Christ, you're desiring unity, you need to get over yourselves. And so that person who continues in this wrongdoing, wanting to lead others, others astray and rebelling against God-ordained authority, this person is to be self-condemned. The meaning is clear, right? The offender's persistence in the teaching and stubborn refusal to acknowledge this apostolic warning amounts to a self-pronouncement of guilt. And one such person as this should be set out from the church. You know, entertaining those who seek to do nothing but criticize, put down, and excuse sin is destructive for all participants. For those who will not listen to biblical standards or heed warnings we should not embrace, to do so is dangerous to both parties. As it mentions in Proverbs 6.27, can a man carry fire next to his chest and clothes and not be burned? Well, in order to have an effective witness, we need to have the right type of relationships with false teachers, with factious people, but also with fellow servants. In Titus 3, verses 12 and 13, when I send Artemis or Tychius to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. 
Now, turning to the positive side here, Paul moves from condemning false teachers to commending church leaders who are generally being used by the Lord and who blessed his own life. An especially personal word here, Paul asked two favors of Titus. First, to come and visit him. And second, to care for two of his fellow servants. Paul did not know when he would send a replacement to Titus, or whether it be Artemis or Tychius. Uh, we know nothing at all about Artemis, but can only surmise that since Paul obviously had confidence in him of taking over this church, he was well qualified to assume direction over those, these Cretan churches. Now, Tychius, on the other hand, is mentioned numerous times in the New Testament. He accompanied Paul on his missionary journey from Corinth to Asia Minor in Acts 20, verse 4. He delivered Paul's letter to the church of Colossae in Colossians 4, and probably the one to Ephesus as well, as he's mentioned in Ephesus 6. In the first, um, in the Colossians reference, he is called our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord. And in Ephesus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord. That remarkable man of God had earlier been sent by Paul to replace Timothy in Ephesus. That he must have done, he must have done a commendable job to take over this much larger task of overseeing a bunch of churches here in the island of Crete. Now in verse 13, before Titus left Crete to join Paul, he was asked to do your best to diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. Now, as with Artemis, we know nothing about Zenos, except he's Zenos the lawyer. That doesn't even tell us if he was a Roman litigator or an expert in Jewish law. Uh, in fact, Zenos is a Roman name, but we can't even surmise that he was Roman, if he was Greek, maybe even Jewish. Many Jewish people at that time had adopted or were given Roman names. But we can only assume that Zenos was a godly believer in whom the apostle had great confidence and for whom he had great love. His, he was looked, um, being called out to look after Zenos. Now, Apollos, on the other hand, he was someone that's mentioned numerous times in the New Testament. Always, he was always mentioned favorably. He was an eloquent Jewish preacher of the gospel from Alexandria, Egypt, who was mighty in the scriptures and who had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He was fervent in spirit, speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, but was acquainted only with the baptism of John, as it mentions in Acts 18. Continuing on, when he came to Ephesus and began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, Priscilla and Aquila heard him and took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Acacia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he had helped greatly those who had believed through grace. While well, Zenos the lawyer and Apollos the well-known preacher were on their way to Crete, they were probably the ones who were actually delivering this letter to Titus. Now, Although Apollos hadn't visited Corinth by the time Paul had wrote his first letter to the church there, apparently some of his converts had come to that city and formed one of the factions in which Paul lamented about. Like sometimes when I thought about Apollos when I was researching this, I was thinking here at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, right? That we need unity. 
but that you may be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? You know, obviously the, the answers were no. But even though Apollos was an orthodox teacher who modeled holiness, the people under his ministry wandered from the truth to almost idolize the preacher himself. God creates unity through the death of his son to create division based on the preference of a teacher of that truth is not only contradictory, but offensive to God and counter to his plan. Satan loves division over preference because it renders God's followers ineffective for service and destroys their testimony to the gospel. I hate to mention this here, but one of the churches I used to go to, which my mom knows, <laughs> used to call themselves, hey, we're, we're, we're a church of MacArthurites. Right? It almost elevates the preacher of John MacArthur to the point where it, it's hard to bring unity with other churches. Right? You start feeling bad when people leave that church because they obviously are not getting the same relationship with God at other churches. It causes disunity. I urge you guys never to follow a preacher. Follow God. Whenever Zenos and Apollos were to arrive on Crete, and wherever they may be headed as they passed through, Titus was urged to help them on their way and see that they lacked nothing. They were cherished partners of Paul and faithful co-laborers in the work of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is not about competition, but of cooperation for the cause of Christ. And that spirit of mutual support and care should always characterize Christ's church, especially spiritual leadership. Under a sovereign Lord, leaders are interdependent, called and commissioned to trust and assist one another as fellow servants of our Lord Jesus Christ. Also, it does not matter in a church whether you are well-known like Apollos or Tychius or relative unknown like Zenos and Artemis. We are to mutually support each and every person in this church, whether you are a pastor, elder, deacon, worship leader, if you are making coffee, if you're working at children's church, if you're going to Mo, if you're going to Woe, if you're going to any place, if you just show up here on Sunday morning, I just urge you guys to support one another. Because it's all about unity, guys. Finally, and only briefly, in order to have an effective witness to the world, Christians must seek true relationships with faithful friends. In Titus 3, verses 14 and 15, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Now in closing, Paul gives his last word on faithful friends. Like Titus and the other elders on Crete, the people among whom they ministered were also to learn to engage in good works and deeds so as to help them meet the needs of people. Right? Help meet the needs of people. I hope you think about what Rosalie was mentioning at the start. I hope we all meet the needs of people. Right? All who engage of works of mercy, 
need never fear that they will be unfruitful. Now, let me mention, it is not possible for a team of elders to meet with every person and meet every urgent need within the church. Not only is there not enough time for us to do this, but there are so many awesome and amazing people here at Enclave that have amazing talents, amazing gifts, who are better suited to meet the pressing needs of others. They have spiritual gifts that I don't have. Right? We need to all be serving each other to meet the needs. One of the worst things a church can ever do is when we stop looking to meet the needs both within the church and outside the church. Our primary mission is worship, and we can worship God through loving others. Right? In Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. You know, a harmonious, loving, and serving church will also be a beacon unto the world, attracting unbelievers to the light of salvation through trust in Christ. Paul's final word for faithful friends in verse 15 is love for others in the faith. He knows that this love is from God and is not deserved or earned by human effort or merit. It is of grace. People engage in good deeds to meet the pressing needs when they faithfully love each other. The final word for faithful friends is love. Love that engages in good deeds to meet pressing needs. This is the best environment for evangelism, guys. The key to evangelism is right relationships. That involves shunning false teachers and rejecting factious people. It involves helping fellow servants and loving faithful friends. You see, the whole thing on evangelism, the whole credibility issue, is built on the character of our lives. And the only way we can pull this off is in his final conclusion, grace be with you all. Because apart from God's grace, it can't happen. But by his grace, it can. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just love you so much. And God, we just pray that we just seek you out, that you fill us with love, Lord, that love for others. We want to meet the needs of others. And Lord, fill us with wisdom, fill us with the desire to know your word, Lord, so that we may not be tempted by those who want to distort your word, that wanted us to go in in part Bible, part world, which inevitably counters your word. God, give us faithful friends to help us in our walk. Give us faithful friends that we may know what it is to meet those needs, that we can help others. Lord, I just pray uh, for your grace and mercy to, to fill us up, Lord. In this and all things we pray, amen.